Welcome to Scenario D, the podcast that takes you behind the magic by giving you the facts and a whole lot of feels. I'm Curbs. And I'm Lish. And this week, we're revisiting the film heralded by some as Disney's first real romance, Lady and the Tramp. So make yourself nice and cozy. And grab a furry friend to snuggle if you have one. As we talk about one of the coziest films that may or may not fall into the category of so-called Christmas classics. Okay, Lish, I have two, well, really just one. I don't know why I said two. It's just one. I have one question for you okay. about Lady and the Tramp. Is this a Christmas movie? I saw you put that in the intro, and to me, no. Like, I've never thought of this as a Christmas movie, and I love making things Christmas movies. Like, I call Little Women a do Christmas you? movie, and it's, like, got oh, one... Oh, I do too, actually, that one. It's got, like, yeah. one or two Christmas scenes, but it's, like, got a Christmas feel to it. Uh-huh. This one? I mean, not this movie starts and ends with Christmas. I know, which is basically ends. all that Little Woman does, but I don't, I don't know why I never have thought of this as a Christmas movie. That's fair. I mean, I'm not saying that I necessarily do. I like read a few internet people who are like, mm-hmm. this is a Christmas movie. And I think that's kind of crazy. But I'm with you with Little Women feeling like a Christmas movie for the exact same reason that people are saying. Yes, this one. Is I a know. Christmas movie. So I, I get you it. Know? But it never and I mean, hit that way for me. I'm also that, you know, weird person who thinks the holiday is not necessarily a Christmas movie. I'll watch that any day of the year. It doesn't mm. feel like a Christmas movie to me. I just enjoy it so much. It's just mm. so good. Like Lady and the Tramp. You enjoy it so much. No, Lady and the Tramp, I did not enjoy so much. Listen, I watched this again with dear sweet Amy Pauline Cressman. Mm -hmm. Shout out, longtime listener of the pod, has been a guest. What a time to be alive. Mm -hmm. She sat down with me. We were watching this movie. And at the end of the movie, she puts her hands, throws them down on the arm, like arms Mm -hmm. of the chair she's sitting in. She looks at me and she goes, I just figured out why this movie is so weird. And I said, you tell me. You tell me right now so that I can say it on the show. And she's like, these people, meaning Jim, Deer, and Darling, their whole social life is dogs. And I said, mm. pardon? She goes, think about it. The beginning of the movie, all they're doing is looking out for the neighborhood dogs. The end of the movie, they're talking about companies coming, and it's the dogs. It's the neighbor dogs. Well, it's not, really, it's not really a, about them and their social life. Like, the whole thing but is from, like, the dog's perspective. But right? I still think it's insane that mm. these people don't seem to do anything but have a baby and a dog. Well, they go that's, on a that's trip. It. They're not even gone that long. They're gone for, like, 20 minutes. I feel like they're not gone at all. They probably were going to get another dog, okay? Honest, going to visit another dog. Mm. Not even, not even people. They were probably just going to visit another dog. And... I don't know what it is. I thought this movie was better than it was. Me watching this, mm-hmm. I was counting down the minutes. You know, it made Bambi feel like the most exciting movie that's ever really? happened. I was I was not 
I shouldn't say I wasn't entertained. There are certain moments, like when Tramp is like, stop that racket, you'll wake the baby. I laugh every time. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that I'm entertained from beginning to end in this film. It definitely has some slow moments. I will definitely give you that. But I feel like Bambi has some slow moments also. It kind of feels about the same for me in terms of, like, engagement. But, like, Bambi at least is really pretty, and the soundtrack, the score is incredible. This, to me... Is kind of just like very middle of the road, which is why it's so shocking to me that this movie is considered like such a fantastic addition to like animated features in general. But Disney, I will say that in terms of the animation itself and the art in general, we're kind of at our peak here because this is, and like I will get into this, but like this is right before Sleeping Beauty, which as we know was like the big budget slasher. So this is kind of one of the last movies where it's like, we've kind of like, everybody has been working at the company now for many years. People are perfecting their craft and we haven't gone through and cut the budgets and made everything go faster and stuff like that yet. So it like is really, we're kind of at peak performance in terms of the artistry was it the best story to tell? Maybe not, but see, in terms of and that. this just further highlights for me like the difference between you and I and our like what we looked at mm-hmm. in these movies when we were kids. Because I'm willing to bet that you liked this film just fine mm-hmm. as a child. Yeah, I thought it was super boring and would have much rather watched jankily animated Robin Hood. Ten out of oh, ten. Oh no. Times. But you're distracted by (laughs) how bad the, like, Xerox era animation is. Mm -hmm. And, like, you saying that this is, like... Like, I had to be reminded this was right before Sleeping Beauty, Mm -hmm. which, of course, was, like, yes, resistance, right? From an art perspective. But this did not register for me as being anything worth talking about artistically. I was like, really, it's another boring dog movie. Yeah, like, I just... I don't... I don't get the dog movies. I honestly think my favorite dog movie... This is a big claim now. That my favorite Disney dog movie is Oliver and Company. <gasps> oh and I my feel that's god, insane. that's I the know. worst one for sure. No, like, are you no, including Fox I, and the Hound in that? I would not actually consider that a dog movie, but I guess you should. I'm yeah. just saying that I didn't. I was like, this is a fox movie, <laughs> <not a> dog <laughs> foxes. <laughs> well, funny. I'm a fox first type of gal. You know, okay? like that's, that's fine. I'm gonna lead with the fox. Yeah. But, yeah, I don't know. I, like, I'm ready to be brought around with mm-hmm. this one because of the backstory. I know that what I've prepared is very interesting. Yeah. I'm not sure what you've prepared is very interesting. Paint me a picture, okay? Speaking of beautiful artistry, paint me a picture yeah. of where this movie came from because right now I'm just not impressed and I'm yeah. looking for a little bit more. Okay. I mean, I'll do my um, best. We'll, we'll see. I mean, we are jumping ahead. From Bambi quite a bit. This is post-strike, post-war. The whole, like, company almost went under. Cinderella saved it. That all happened. And now Disney's got, like, a booming live-action division. Disneyland is in the works. Sleeping Beauty is in the works. We're, just like I was saying, we're in a bit of a sweet spot artistically. They're not facing the crazy budget cuts yet because... Sleeping Beauty hasn't happened yet. Right. So we're kind right. of at a point where it's, like, in general... The movies are looking good. They're making their money back. And we're kind of like in a little bit of a good groove. We're also in like peak nine old men era. There were quite a few of them Mm. that were involved in this movie. And just a lot of established veterans at the studio. People that know what they're doing. They've got a good system. We're kind of past the point of just like inventing the wheel. Like they're just 
you know, we're, we're in a groove, basically, we're by rolling. the time yep. this, this film hits production. So it came out in the 50s, but development actually started many, many years before that. There's a lot of confusion about the actual development of this film. And I think I was telling you, it was pretty much left out of a lot of my, like, go-to books that I go for researching a lot of these yeah. older films. Like, some of them, it was just, like, photos, and, like, there was, like, actually no information, and that was pretty weird. Um, so I found a documentary that was, like, a behind-the-scenes that they did a few years ago, and apparently that was kind of put together because Eric Goldberg, who's one of the key guys from the Renaissance era wanted to set the record straight on what actually happened during the making of there. Um, So this involves my old pal, Joe Grant. He is racist Joe Grant. (laughs) Yes. He has uh, some problematic things to say about some of the other movies we've talked about. Uh, Mm -hmm. But he was a key story guy in a lot of these early films. He came up with the original concept. He had a Springer Spaniel named Lady, and apparently he felt like the dog was cast aside when his daughter was born. He did one initial sketch of Lady, brought it to Walt. This was late 1930s, and Walt approved it for some story work to happen on the project, which was titled Lady at the time. Just Lady. Just Lady. Sorry, just Lady. No Tramp. Yeah, just Lady. Yeah, no, all Lady, no Tramp. All Lady, no Tramp, exactly. They worked on it for quite a few years, and like I said, no tramp in any of these versions. It was all just about Lady, the like mean aunt with the creepy cats was involved. That was kind of like the key conflict that the whole thing centered around. Oh, no. And then in the early 1940s, Walt saw his the first like storyboard version of the film put together, and he pretty much hated it. So Bless. it was scrapped. There was just like not enough going on. Lady was a really lovely, charming dog, but there was just like not enough behind the story. I want to know how good that sketch was that Walt was like, oh, this sketch of a dog. We got to make the movie. I know. Absolutely. And then literally like just a little time later goes, I hate this. Honestly, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? This went nowhere. Fair question. Fair question. You greenlit a movie based on one little napkin sketch of a dog. Like, are you... I mean, I think that happened quite a bit. Like, there's a lot of movies throughout the Disney history, still happens to this day, where it's like you work on something in development, you develop it out, and then it's just not it, you know? So it's like, we're not going to proceed with this, and it gets shelved. Like, that, you know, we've talked about a lot of movies where that like happened for like you know like Beauty and the Beast was shelved for a long time things like Tangled and then they kind of come back to them like a different angle different perspective different person and they're able to like actually bring it to life so it's not crazy that it's like oh this maybe could have worked but it sucks so we're just gonna stop it's just the fact that like here Walt have a sketch of a dog mm-hmm. and I'm just picturing Walt like wiping a tear like this cocker spaniel yeah. will save the studio <laughs> yeah it's so beautiful yeah. yeah like just a weird vibe I don't know I'm I'm not buying it especially just knowing that it's Joe Grant I just at this point he is the running gag of this entire I show I like, know forget Gaston forget Lion King it's, it's Joe. Joe Grant what's well, it's Joe it's Joe just <laughs> just Joe <laughs> 
Anyway, so Sorry. a couple of years later, Walt read a short story called Happy Dan the Cynical Dog by Ward Green. This was published in the 1945 Cosmopolitan magazine. <laughs> Walt's reading Cosmo. I know. Well, I Get it out. sounds like Cosmo was a little bit different back then. You know, yes. gets evolved to what it is now. But yes, Walt's reading Cosmo. He thought that this lady story could potentially be revived if she came into contact with this cynical dog, like the one from the story. So he bought the rights to it. During that time, they're kind of having a rough time with the war and like all of that. So it wasn't really like rushed into production or anything. But now Walt felt like there was like at least grounds enough to kind of revive it and bring it back to life. Mm -hmm. They did have a hard time figuring out what to call this cynical dog. So ideas that were brought up were Homer, Rags, or Bozo. Can you imagine like Lady and the Bozo? I mean, They're like it's it, not the it's same It's not name. a good name, no. but Bozo, like Homer, Rags, or Bozo, I read somewhere, is that like that name was actually based on or inspired by a dog who lived on Disneyland's pony farm. Really? So that's where these names oh, are coming from. Yeah, how cute, cute is that? Okay, yeah. that's actually Yeah, so like cute. this dog was happy, home on the range style. Yeah. Not that home on the range, though. <laughs> terrible. But like, you know, living out his best days, and that's where those names came from. So Interesting. Okay. Curbs is fun facts. Love that, baby. Got Thank so you. many of those for this one, <laughs> let me tell you. In 1949, Joe Grant actually left the studio. So I didn't Bye. know this. Um, but apparently there was a bit of a falling out between Walt and Joe. They're saying it's over Alice in Wonderland because apparently Walt didn't actually want to make that movie and Joe talked him into it. Whole big thing, big ripped. So who knows what really went on there, but Joe's gone. The story's not solidified, but the, a bunch of other story artists took it over. They're still using his original sketches, referencing some of his work, but he's removed from the project. In the early 1950s, Walt actually asked the author of the Cosmopolitan story, Ward Green, to write it in mm. novel form. So, I mean, at this point, they hadn't really worked on any stories that didn't have, like, a well-known classic source material. Right. So I think Walt kind of wanted that out there in the universe for, like, to draw some attention to the story and yes. uh, like have people be pump. familiar with it before the movie comes out. Mm -hmm. So just due to the timing and how all of that kind of went down, it means that Ward Green actually receives all of the original credit for the story and Joe Grant's name was left completely off the project. <laughs> I'm sorry. This, I don't know why Joe Grant failing is bringing me joy in this moment. Like this poor man who died at the age of ripe old age of like 96 or something. Yeah. Like honestly, Joe Grant lived a life. He I don't know. I don't know why we have vilified him on this show so much. I mean, we could, I mean, we could point to any number of things, I suppose. In yeah. His earlier films were finding out he was a racist. Mm -hmm. That's obviously a problem, yeah. but like, yeah, I, I don't know why this is just tickling me a little bit that like, bye Joe. It's like, just, see you later. It's just like really petty. The other, like, final, like, you know, kick in the pants was that, like, Walt then implied that the original concept actually came from when he bought his wife a puppy and put it in a hat box. Well, okay. Did he say that the whole story or just that scene? Because I read it both ways. I think in 
it originally, like, people have now since corrected it, but I think originally it was implied that that was, like, the spark, the initial spark, and that Joe, you know, Joe had nothing to do with it, and that's obviously not the case. It's moments like this, when history is being corrected, that just further justifies that I'm like, Walt Disney kind of sucked, and I'm here to stand by that, and, like, Mm-hmm. savvy businessman whatever but like kind of a jerk so yeah. honestly go off joe grant maybe i'm back on the joe I, know, train. I know i don't know i know i, I, I definitely know. i definitely feel for him in this one especially since he worked on it for so long like he was at least was five his years dog. of his life his sketch <laughs> my dog sketch I feel bad for him oh. on this one. He did get a lot of credit on a lot of the other ones, so it's not like nobody knows who he is and all that. But, like, yes, the original idea here was clearly his. Man, land sakes. Anyway, like I was saying before, we're, we're in the, the peak from, like, a visual perspective by the time this hits production. So it's, like, the development train was long on this one but now it's like the 1950s before it's like go 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 we're animating and we're doing all this stuff once the stories kind of come together sleeping beauty comes out just after this and is a beautiful budget slasher so the face of animation which we will get into in our next episode with 101 dalmatians is kind of changed forever kind of after these two movies so right that's what i'm talking about when i say we're kind of at our peak a lot of these early concept paintings came from the one and only mary blair she was Favorite. supposed to do a lot of the backgrounds on this movie but she left to work on children's books instead so her work on this was minimal but i think still impactful if you see a lot of her like watercolor work on this just some really beautiful stuff that you can kind of see kind of come through another key contributor for some of the early color work was ivan Earl. Uh, You may remember him from our Sleeping Beauty episode, so he was obviously working on that during this. Looks like he did some of the key art for this, I guess, in his spare time. Particularly, he was involved in the Bella Note sequence, which Mm. the film is most famous for. Yeah. We had a lot of the nine old men on this one. They kind of all took different characters, different sequences. The one I mainly want to talk about is Frank Thomas, who did the spaghetti sequence. And this was actually something that Walt originally wanted to cut from the film. He thought there was no way that these dogs sharing this pasta was going to be even remotely romantic and it's just like not going to strike the right mood. Frank really disagreed and he just decided to animate the entire thing by himself without even any layouts. And obviously it's like the best scene in the movie and it's iconic and thank you Frank Thomas. And, I mean, now we had the opportunity to eat at Tony's. And, I mean, what a time that was. <laughs> Truly iconic. Uh, yes. We gave it a tough time, but that was a good first meal in Disney for that trip. It was. It, it was, was. It was just, like, chill, honestly. I, I was so overwhelmed that first day when we were there mm-hmm. that I'm glad it was not, like, a Be Our Guest level mm-hmm. dinner. Yeah. Because it was just, like, my brain could not keep up with how stimulated it was mm-hmm. and, like, didn't know what it was feeling. And Tony's was the perfect, like what is this place? It had chocolate cake. That's great. And it's, Going home. it's really <laughs> cute. And it's like something that's it a is. very easy nod to a classic film to have there. Yes. It's just like the, it makes the food is just kind of meh. Like if the food it's was whatever. better, I'd 
you know. Yeah, the whole thing is whatever, but to your point, the Bella Note like, scene is not. And actually, like, the thing that's most interesting about, to me, mm-hmm. having now, you know, been bored watching it, but looking into the movie, I think what's most fascinating is that this movie is considered by a lot of people to first and foremost be, like, a romance. Like, it's not an animated film to a lot of people. It's yeah. considered a romantic I would, film. I would agree with that, yeah. Because of how the story's told, and mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, previous love, quote-unquote, stories with Disney, like, if we think Snow White and Cinderella being the two, mm-hmm. like, notable ones before this film, the they're kind of bland. Like, it's not actually a love story, right? Like, it has romance in the sense that maybe the visuals are romantic or the fact that, like, the female lead ends up with a male, you know, counterpart. But they're boring male leads. The, yeah. Like, they're not there's a It's not like a dual character No, there's, there's no... Yeah. There's no real story mm-hmm. development. Whereas with Lady and the Tramp, like, it hit a lot of those traditional beats that you'd expect in a romantic film. Mm-hmm. So, like, for example... You've got, you know, lovers from different backgrounds. Very Romeo and Juliet mm-hmm. right off the bat, where it's like he's from the wrong side of the tracks, literally. And she's like the life of luxury and the, you know, privilege and whatever. And then they have this meet cute mm-hmm. where like, wow, they shouldn't have met, but they did. And there's an immediate misunderstanding between them. But don't worry, they go on adventures. Then they have a romantic night under the stars. And then they join forces eventually to take down an evil force, which in this case was the rat, that uh, terrifying, gross rat. It's disgusting. Um, it is. It's pretty gross. Yeah. This love story feels like a real love mm-hmm. story because they have very different personalities that ultimately allow them to improve each other, which is what you want to see. You want to see yeah. like, a pair coming together and partnering. So, you know, Tramp kind of expands Lady's horizons, makes her world a little bit bigger, and Lady teaches Tramp how to be responsible, right? So... The fact that this movie was dogs was maybe tough for some audiences to understand the love story, but ultimately did help soften some of the, like, (laughs) questionable elements of this. Them staying out all night and sleeping together on that hill, everyone knows they did it. Yeah. Everybody. For crying out loud, two months later, There's puppies. puppies. Yeah, it's undeniable. Yeah. And even when ladies being chased by all those other dogs, some people have read that scene as being a metaphor for like sexual or domestic violence as well because she's this you know young woman being cornered by three clearly male aggressive dogs like so I mean that scene was interesting in itself I think they could have made it slightly less intense if they wanted to Mm -hmm. her being chased it could have been like her just being scared of a car or something or like her leash gets stuck and she has to be saved kind of like wedding planner style where the heels in the street I don't know something like that um but the fact that this movie was dogs kind of softened some of those themes, but still made this all feel really believable. And because the characters were this perfect blend of like animal and human mannerisms, you know, it made them feel really believable and sympathetic, which was nice. Now, one thing about this story, besides this premarital sex, I guess, uh, that makes some people uncomfortable now is just those clearly defined, like pretty stereotypical gender roles. There mm. is a certain like insistence on domesticity particularly like with lady you know like even like jim deere is always wanting her to calm down but she's a dog like she's 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 going to respond to things because she's a dog but even you know tramp is like so free-spirited and this and that and she's kind of more like let's just stay around here why do we have to go anywhere whatever and then when they become like a pair some people are reading him becoming this like adopted dog as being like his freedom's been taken away, which is kind of again oh. like this statement on like you get married and like you're trapped. No, <laughs> which I think 
kind of a stretch yeah. with dogs, and they're animated. But you can read even further into that of this being kind of a reflection of the fact that, like, you know, this film seems to be set before World War One, based mm-hmm. on the yeah. like way that the people are dressed and the technology that we're seeing, which was a period that Walt remembered with fondness. But it, you know, does kind of imply more of a conservative message about like, you know stay at home it's more comfortable here it's safe here like so kind of that idealized america which is coming through which for some people now is not overly comfortable i suppose but the thing i find most fascinating about the way this story was built we got joe grant and a napkin i'm just saying it's a napkin i'm sure it was a real (laughs) sketch but we got joe grant with a dirty dog sketch napkin we've got him being thrown out on the street whilst stealing ideas we've got like premarital sex between dogs but Ralph Eggleston, who is a big Pixar guy, mm-hmm. you know what he's what he did at Pixar. Do you know? Are you gonna look at my notes? I, I, so I, I saw it in your notes <laughs> earlier. He's the art he director. The, of, the art Toy director Story. for Toy Story. Mm-hmm. So a big deal. He was actually very heavily inspired by Lady and the Tramp when they were working on Toy Story, which I think is very interesting because you would think at a glance these films have nothing to do with each other. What the heck could mm-hmm. they have to do with each other? It's the fact that it was told from a perspective that was not of adult humans. Mm-hmm. So yeah. even Bambi, Bambi and Dumbo are both movies about animals, but they're still told from a human perspective. Like mm-hmm. The animals look animal sized yeah. compared to human things. They're in a human environment or in an environment we understand where as Lady and the Tramp, is told much more from those lower angles. Yeah. Like we don't see, like, any human's faces. We see Darling's hair, like, four times, mm-hmm. and each time it's a different color because they didn't bother to pick a color for it to consistently be, so she always has a different hair color. It's crazy. I didn't notice that. Maybe she's just coloring her hair curves. Come on. Every 20 minutes? Come on now. In the 50s? Pre-50s? Get out yeah, of Yeah, but there's, like, quite a bit base. of, like, time span in this movie, right? So. It's like, it's a year. Yeah. It's a year. The whole thing? Yeah, because when she's, when she gets her collar, she's only six months old. Right. Literally a young pup. But then she literally. has to, like, have a baby, and then the baby is, like, I crawling don't... around by the end. Right? I don't think any of these timelines really line up. Max, it's two years. Okay. Max, it's two years. Yeah. I, I'll give you that. I mean... I have to color my hair, like, every two months, so I get okay, it. Okay, well, this is pre-World <laughs> War One. Maybe she's wearing wigs. The point is, I feel like you're really stealing my point here. Sorry, We're losing sorry, track. Sorry, We're girl. losing sorry track. Sorry to slow you down. The p- it's okay. The point was that because it's being told from an animal's perspective, this greatly inspired the way they approached Toy Story. This is mm. why that film also worked so well to tell such a good, mature, thought-out yeah. story from that perspective because they're like, oh, Disney has already really successfully done that and told a story mm-hmm. that feels more mature than the subject matter should be. A story about dogs has the potential to be an episode of Paw Patrol that's an hour and a half long, True. which is kind of yeah. like nothing, yeah. right? But it feels like a full-fledged story. So he kind of leaned on that film pretty heavily and actually gave this big presentation on it for the Walt Disney Family Museum, which is kind of fun. I thought that was kind of neat. This is a Curbs' fun fact. Oh, another one. Truly a fun fact. I, there's, I think, one more. Whoa. Prepare yourself. Three in one episode? <laughs> yes. Yeah. We're being spoiled today. Yeah. Technology in the 1950s is interesting because they're kind of encountering a similar problem that we're encountering now where television is just becoming a thing so they're kind of panicking in terms of movie theaters and how are we getting people to actually leave their house 
to watch the television at their house to go to the movie theater, which is funny because right. now everything's on Netflix and it's like, how do we, how do we get people into the theater instead of Netflix? And so one of the like creative things that they came up with was called Cinemascope. This is basically just like a widescreen anamorphic lens that was a popular way to shoot films in the 50s and 60s. Disney had already used this for some of their live action films, and so they wanted to use this for Lady and the Tramp also. They were one of the first studios that was like trying to get involved in this and trying to make it more of like a special experience to actually go and watch this in the theater. This put a lot of pressure on the specifically layout and background artists. They had to approach things differently than other productions because they like screen size and everything is completely different so instead of making a bunch of backgrounds that you're moving between you're basically making like one giant one and there's more movement for the characters to do within that that's going to be different for those guys as well as the animators because the animators again they're used to having the backgrounds move behind them they're now moving the characters around in that space and, right. of course, they didn't start the production with this in mind. This is something that kind not. of happened midway through. So there's a lot of the backgrounds where they kind of just, like, added on the sides. And if you watch, they ended up making two versions because not all the theaters could accommodate this. So they've got the one more, like, 4 by 3 version and then the anamorphic version. If you watch those side by side, there's actually, like, scenes where if you're, like, looking at, like, Tramp is talking in the four by three version. It just Tramp on the screen. But then if you're looking at the wide screen, there's actually other characters there, like ladies there. Oh, yeah. So it's like very, wow. very different in terms of what they could fit on the screen, like the extra animation yeah. that they had to do because you have to have other characters reacting and like all of this stuff. So a lot of different things that they had to account for. Otherwise, they would have just had like a lot of just wide open space with nothing going on right so, like you have to be putting other characters in there you have to be doing less jump cuts it's just like a lot of differences in the whole like filmmaking process that this of course affected mm-hmm. the main guy that they had overseeing the backgrounds his name was claude Coates, said he was a master of creating detail without distracting you so this was very key especially for Lady and the Tramp, they created a very idyllic and detailed environment. So this is kind of the opposite of Bambi, which is interesting why you mm. call that one more like visually appealing to you. I would tend to agree, but they just, the artistry level is kind of the same, but they've gone in different directions. Whereas Bambi right. went very low detail, very like watercolor in the aesthetic and Lady and the Tramp is extremely detailed. So if you like look at what's going on in the backgrounds, like you can, you can see that there's just like a lot of more like lines and details within Mm -hmm. the art itself. So it's just very like different approach to it. Well, and even that opening scene, Mm -hmm. the scene that makes everyone think it's Christmas. There's a lot. I did notice Mm -hmm. watching it the other day. There's a lot of detail on each of the individual trees. Mm -hmm. Like the fact that like the front door has a wreath with like individually identified like boughs on it. Like it is, it is much more of a complete kind of set. Mm -hmm. It feels more like a design set than a background. Exactly. 
yeah. much more fully realized, which you're right, Bambi, of course, does not have. They were like, let's paint the whole thing soft. And this is a more, like, higher budget way to go because, of course, that's mm. going to take a lot longer. So, again, this is, yeah. like, something that could really have only happened in this Disney moment where they have the artists with the skills developed to do it and they're not trying to cut budgets from every angle possible so it's like this is kind of the only moment where something like this for this and Sleeping Beauty could have happened gotcha and it's interesting you say like that it felt like a complete set because Claude apparently actually built it out and like you were saying to see things from the dog's perspective that's something that really came from him because he would build like a little model of the set and then actually take photos from like what a dog would be seeing so he like had the whole thing with the stairs and then like kind of looking up so it's like they could actually build out that perspective properly so that's where that came from so what you're telling me is that claude coates inspired the uh, weta team to build like minas Tirith and stuff for lord of the rings i'm making this connection they're not connections but i'm making that connection i don't know if this was like the first model but it's definitely like early on in doing something like that because that's essentially what they do for CG now, right? Like they Mm -hmm. actually build it out and then put the camera wherever they want. In the 2D world, you have to kind of figure out what all of the perspective and everything is gonna look like on your own. So the thought of like Mm -hmm. actually building it so that people could draw and paint it with all of that in mind, since like you said, it's it's a new perspective, not one that is like generally kind of normal to what the human eye would see. True. So that was a pretty interesting. Way to go, Claude. Um, mm-hmm. He uh, he was like a, a pretty big deal at Disney. He worked there like his whole life. He started before Snow White. He was a background artist for a while. And then after Lane the Tramp, he was actually moved over to WED. So he was involved in developing some of the original Disneyland attractions, such as Haunted Mansion, Pirates of the Caribbean. Oh, bless. Yeah. They called him the Gentle Giant because he was 6'6", and just apparently an all-around great guy. So thank you for your service, Claude. He died, I think, 1996, but worked his whole life at Disney back and forth between the films and parks. I mean, it makes sense that he would have been tapped with this type Mm -hmm. of kind of like model work and perspective. Mm -hmm. Attractions like Haunted Mansion in particular, that's super important because half of that attraction is optical illusions, Mm -hmm. shifting perspectives, like that type of thing. So if he already is kind of, you know, his brain already kind of works that way. Yeah, you'd want someone like that on the project because he's already going to be thinking about if someone's sitting in a doom buggy here, mm-hmm. but we need them to be looking at this. If we need them to pay attention to this, what should we do over here so that we're maximizing this impact and minimizing that impact? Like, I think that's that makes perfect sense. Absolutely. And I think that's something that people often don't think about because you think about, like, oh, the nine old men and animators and, like, the actual, like, moving parts yes. of what you're seeing but the layout and background artists are super key in creating mm-hmm. the unique perspective that we're looking at and basically designing yeah. the world that we're looking at in the 2d landscape yeah. yeah and actually knowing too that he was like such an attention to detail what did how did you describe it you said he was a master okay. of creating detail without distracting you pirates is that mm-hmm. type of ride yeah, as well for sure every time you ride pirates you could see something else in the background of those different vignettes and tableaus you're driving through that you would have never seen before because there's mm-hmm. too many things for you to be looking at but it feels like you're looking at the whole picture for it, sure i mean 
Look at these Imagineering connections. I know. It's beautiful. I know. And you know, the same way that the backgrounds kind of are the, well, the background of the whole film. You know what else is in the background? Music. Let's talk about it. Great segue, segue, Curbs. Nailed it. Thank you. Yeah. Segway, sweetie. Here again. <laughs> As we've already alluded to, this this movie is very different from Bambi. It's mm-hmm. very different than Dumbo. So it shouldn't be a surprise that Disney also started experimenting with different types of soundtracks as opposed to the previous two mm-hmm. films that we've talked about this season. This was much more song focused, much less score focused. Right. There were yeah. so many songs in this movie that I forgot about. Like how many Lady and the Tramp songs can you name or like describe? There's like me. obviously the Siamese one. There's the really awkward one where Lady is, singing about wondering what, what a, baby. a baby i hate that part i, hate it I so must much. find out yeah today <laughs> so awkward like what are we doing it's called here? what is a baby it's called yep. what is a baby okay so that's two that's two there's the one that our girl peggy at the pound yeah sings. he's a tramp he's a tramp mm-hmm. and that's bella note oh bella note of course yeah there's the la la lu lullaby that darling sings to the baby okay yeah the dogs all sing in the jail together there's so many blacked out i don't even remember that at all you know what that's (laughs) fine it's really racist so we'll get to that but (laughs) there's just a lot of songs a lot of lyrically Mm -hmm. like kind of focused songs a lot of melodies very singable everything Mm -hmm. in this movie is meant to be like stuck in your head for days and bella note in particular, as mm-hmm. you already alluded to, really did become the standout here for a lot of people because it is so romantic. It is a beautiful scene. The animation that Frank Thomas did was so compelling and felt so believable and real and blah, 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 blah. Um, so it kind of came the like staple of the Disney songbook from this film. Most people would pick that song yeah. over He's a Tramp, but that doesn't mean that He's a Tramp wasn't also like a straight up banger in this movie. It's great. Before, yeah. like, yeah, so, so... Peggy Lee. Tell me about Peggy Lee. Oh my goodness. There's so much. Strap yourself in. I'm juicy gloss. Joe Grant gets fired and Peggy Lee is suing Disney. All right. Here we go. So Peggy Lee was an American singer. She was a singer. And she was approached by Disney to be in this film because they were like, she's got a great voice. She's of the time. She's recognizable. Similar to what Disney's done before. Like Disney as the person. He was identifying that we need draws, right? Like we need either stories or actors or locations that people are going to want to see on screen in Mm -hmm. animated form. Otherwise, what are we doing? So she was approached and she actually voiced not only Peg, but also the Siamese cats. So Siam. Okay. Inherently a problem, of course, because if they are choosing to go heavily into a Chinese depiction of these cats, which already is a problem, you're also casting a white lady. Way to go. Really good. Mm. That's the way to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, But because of the fact that these two songs that these three characters sing are two of the most kind of like iconic parts of, uh, ironically, neither of us mentioned that song, actually, the Siamese cat song, when we were listing songs. I did. (laughs) I said, oh, did you? Yeah, it was the first one I said because it's, you know, been in my head since I watched it this afternoon. I. Wow, okay. I did not even hear you say it. I heard you say something else. Here I am thinking that neither of us said it. Regardless, roll the tapes. Everyone, you can tell you can tell me in the outro. Yeah, I'll play I it back and make not. sure. Please do. Yeah. Um, but the fact that she sang kind of 
these two iconic songs from this film meant that she was a really big contributor, right? Mm -hmm. And not only was she a voice actor and a singer for this film, she also actually made a significant change to the story, which dramatically changed the end. So you remember our dear friend, old trusty, the neighboring dog who Mm -hmm. lost his sense of smell, bravely sacrifices himself to save Tramp from the dog catcher Mm -hmm. um, and ends up, you know, being hit by the cab, but then he just kind of breaks his leg and is limping around and you Looks know, all the dead. dogs are playing in his wrinkles. It's not Looks dead. dead, but isn't dead. Walt wanted to kill him really bad, really wanted to kill Trusty. That was the original intention. He was hit and run over. Like yeah. he should be dead and not just have this broken leg. That just seems... Yeah, doesn't, doesn't make sense. I like yeah. it. It's not looking good for old Trusty. <laughs> and yet here he is limping in with Lady and the Tramps, mm-hmm. like puppies snuggling up in his, you know, floppy loose skin. Adorable. Mm-hmm. I guess Peggy didn't like this ending because she could remember holding her own dog as he died in her arms and she's like this is going to upset a lot of children Mm. because trusty is very much that like classic family dog who you've had forever it was implied through him losing his sense of smell and him being really forgetful that he was an older dog and it just it broke her heart to think that this dog was going to die on screen so she actually convinced uh, uh, story goes she convinced walt to change that ending and keep old trusty around so you know, she's had a lot of impact on this film. Her fingerprints. I wish that he died. Like, I feel like that would have been more impactful because it's like such a good moment for Trusty because it's like, I know. you know, they're like, oh, he can't smell anything. And then he's like coming through and like he's saving Tramp. And it kind of just would have hit a little bit harder for yes. me if he died. I get the perspective of like, yeah, that's going to be hard for kids to watch. Yeah. but. Uh, and I think, and maybe Peggy was coming at it from like, d- like yes, it would have hit harder. Does it need to though? Like, does this moment need to hit harder than it does? We're cutting to Christmas in the next scene. Like, do we need? Like, I mean, that felt that felt weird, really janky as it is. I don't know. The whole like ending is a bit, is a bit off. The ending's terrible. Yeah, like, this whole movie isn't that good. That's what I'm saying <laughs> from the beginning. So like, you're just coming around to how I already yeah. felt. But I agree with you. So like. All that to say, though, Peggy, big contributor. She even inspired the way that her character moved. Very classic older Disney. It's like, let's take the voice actor and try to imbue some of that in. And because she was kind of more of a loungy singer, that's why Peg is so sultry and, like, flirtatious. Yeah. Because Peggy was as well. Love her. She's amazing. However, this is where the controversy starts. So we just covered how much Peggy gave to this film. Mm -hmm. How instrumental, pun intended, she was. (laughs) How big of a contributor she was. She was paid $4,500 for her work on the film. So that was $3,500 for doing the voices and $1,000 for writing some of the songs. And that was split with her co-songwriter. And at the time, this was a decent amount. This is not an unreasonably low amount in the 50s. It's quite fair based on like inflation, the industry, all that. So that's that's not the problem. The problem was that Peggy was signed with a record label. And part of her contract with that label stated that... Nobody but the record label had the right to make money off of her voice or her anything to do with her recordings, which meant that Disney had no right to make records on sale for the public or for radio play. So if there was a soundtrack, in theory, Peggy's work should not be on it. So it's fine for like the movie itself. It's just you can't just have the song on its own. Well, if it's in the theater and people are paying for it, it's fine because it's in the theater. But if people can pay to own it in their own home, that's a no-no. Oh, 
Oh, so, so like even like a home video situation is Correct. a problem. Okay. So the the drama came when they when Disney started selling VHS. So this is thirty years oh, okay. after gotcha. she worked on this film. Yeah. So Peggy by this point is fifty or sixty. Okay. Right. She's like finished her career. But in the late 80s, when Disney home video started happening, this movie sold like hotcakes. They made $90 million on VHS sales alone. And only they, offered... weren't, they weren't looking at these contracts from the 1950s to no, be like, because, oh, can we, yeah. No, and even when they did, it was like the wording, the verbiage yeah. was different between her record contract and the Disney one. So, you know... Peggy made very little money off of these VHS sales in spite of the tremendous scope of her contributions. So she hired a litigator who went, hey, Mikey Eisner, hello, hi. (laughs) Like, my contract stated that you can't sell my work to the public and my work is this movie. So you can't be making money off of selling this to the public without paying me for my contribution. Actually, you shouldn't be doing it at all because technically you cannot based on this contract. And Disney was like, ah, we haven't breached contract. No, the words are different. See, eh, it's different. And then they started to get worried that other voice actors are going to do the same yeah, thing. Yeah, that could like, really open uh, a can of worms. If Peggy opens this Pandora's box or this yeah. peg box, <laughs> yeah, it's not clever. I don't know why I leaned in as if that was clever. It's not good. I'm so sorry. Like, apology for this episode is that joke. It was bad. But... They were concerned that not only they'd have to pay her a lot of money, but like other people are going to start knocking on the door and saying, hello, you owe me a lot of money. So long story short, in the early 90s, shortly after Lady and the Tramp was first released on VHS, which I think was in like either 86 or 88. It's like one of those years. In the early 90s, she took them to court and ultimately the court ruled in her favor. She was paid out $2.3 million dollars. And Disney wow. ended up changing its contractual language to avoid this in the future. So yeah. now Disney contracts are much clearer that it's like, we can do what we want. We will pay you once. Yeah, fair. You get paid for the work you're doing, and then we own that. And, I mean, by this point in her life, Peggy was in a wheelchair, super frail, super old, but she came into that courtroom, owned it like a boss. Jody Benson was actually meant to testify on Disney's behalf, like in defense of Disney, but ultimately ended up... <laughs> more or less indicating that Lee should have gotten more money for what she did. Yeah. Uh, and was like, give this woman everything. Yeah. Like, this is the reason your movie is so good. Like, she's such Jody an iconic knows. part. Yeah. Well, I think the types of, from what I could read, it, the types of questions they asked Jody were meant to be like, no, voice actors don't actually do that much. An animated film is like so much more than. Just oh my voice gosh, acting. you're asking Jodie Benson that basically, she was like so young. So, though. Oh like, my gosh, and her and and remember. Her contract would have probably better reflected what Disney wished Pegs did. Yeah. So Jody was meant to testify as like, yes, I agreed to this because I understand that my role as a voice actor is only one part of the whole. But you're like, asking one of the blah, blah, most blah. iconic Disney voice actors of all time. Like, well, come on. But that that's actually secondary to, I think, the fact that Jody Benson was just looking at Peggy Lee yeah. as a contributor and being like, this woman's amazing. Yeah. Like, like, yeah, for me, and remember, Jodi was so humble. She was so yeah. young and, like, didn't, and, and Ariel wasn't, Ariel wouldn't have been as big as she is now at that point either because Little Mermaid would have only been out for, like, two years, which, like, yes, it was big, it was but, like, huge, it wasn't yeah. everywhere yeah. in terms of, like, the parks and everything yeah. else. That was still coming. So it was just a crazy, a crazy thing. You know, we're firing Joe Grant and Peggy suing for millions yeah. of dollars. It just honestly was a crazy 
film. And obviously, because of this controversy in the conversation, He's a Tramp has gotten a lot of attention since this mm. came out. Like, since the movie came out, this has been a big topic of conversation. And not only was it, you know, a reason for contractual law to be revisited, but some people were not comfortable with it. Surprise, surprise, mm. because it has some pretty overt sexuality, which ties back to the dogs sleeping together, the premarital sex. Uh, people didn't like that. And I mean, I get it. It is very, like sexy you know it's a sexy, sexy dog, dog. What a dog. <laughs> like it is oh that's like a great it is just, thank you so much yeah. wow i have not been working on it i think she just lives in there yeah, like maybe maybe i'm peggy maybe another life i don't know but it is a very flirtatious song and i think the other issue with that being such an overtly sexual song is that it also kind of like it it low-key shames tramp for being out there and like doing his thing, but also speaks to the fact that it's more socially acceptable for men for a to man. be out there with multiple partners yeah. and women shouldn't. And especially in the fifties, that would have been the idea. Oh yeah. I mean? For like, sure. Yeah. So, and again, coming back to the premarital dog sex, it's like such a weird vibe. If that was the kind of like conservative view on like sexuality mm-hmm. that they would have painted lady, painted ladies. That is another uh, name I think for sex workers an old time one there you go so many so many things coming up uh but i think that's like another reason that it's so interesting they would include that scene if such a conservative view would mean that like lady should not be doing that the fact that her name is lady should indicate that she wouldn't be doing that but she did i don't know he's a tramp just really had people hot and bothered okay and it should come as no surprise that like many other films before it Lady and the Tramp has some very problematic racial stereotypes. And honestly, this one so far takes the cake for the sheer number. The volume of racial stereotypes is pretty Even more than Dumbo, eh? Well, Dumbo, it was focusing on one group. Like, it was black people that were being depicted really inappropriately. In this case, they cover a broad range. Yeah, so we've got a few new... uh, Got a few new new people to make fun of. Love that for us. So Cyanam, obviously, like the entire Siamese cat song is laden with like really heavy handed stereotypes lyrically and even just musically. It's a very stereotypical Chinese sounding melody and instrumentation. But the fact that their cats also had some people and still continues to have some people upset just because cats are destructive animals. Like they are mm. ones that will knock stuff over. They're pretty chaotic. But because Disney chose to represent them as Chinese or Asian in any way, there were still a lot of anti-Asian like propaganda yeah, going sure. around post-World War II because of Pearl Harbor. Yeah, so like totally. this, you know, lady could be interpreted as being the United States and the cats are Asian peoples, which of course is, you know, an issue. It's perpetuating those ideas that already existed of this difference, this othering. This and kind we of, like, know that like good. Disney always puts like the cats as the villain. That was like a whole thing Always. we talked about it in Cinderella and it's just like, yep. uh, it's a thing. Dogs are good. Cats are bad. Yes. And I mean, the fact that aunt Sarah also like owned these cats kind of extends that metaphor even further where it's like the person who doesn't understand us or is out to get mm-hmm. us, this evil force is like controlling these animals. Mm-hmm. So that was obviously a significant problem. And one we'll get to revisit with the Aristocats because guess what? Oh, yeah. Pops up again. Can't wait. Um, problem number two, Pedro the Chihuahua. Do I really need to say anything else? This is the most oversimplified portrayal of Mexican people I've ever seen where his only personality trait is his accent. 
literally the only thing going for him. And then he has that overly long, stereotypical Hispanic name of his cousin's sister or whatever. And it's just kind of like, okay, literally no personality besides the fact that he has a Mexican accent. Um, Boris the Borzois, which was that big kind of wolfhound looking Mm -hmm. dog, was a stereotypical Russian character. Um, This movie was made in the middle of the Cold War, so this could explain why they included this type of dog accent, whatever. But again, it is an oversimplification of this idea of Russian people kind of being really nostalgic and kind of romantic but also kind of just like hard to understand overly philosophical like not making any sense Mm -hmm. to a lot of the other dogs tony and joe hello mario brothers very very italian american uh (laughs) oversimplification again with these giant mustaches and the ridiculous accents and tramp even makes an offhand comment at one point about how they have weird accents and speak unintelligible english like come on now Come on now. We are really just trying to ruin every single people group. We're really trying to come. Do for you know, today. like, do you know why they went so in this accent direction, though? At the root of no. it, it is just because it makes the animators' jobs a bit easier. It adds, like, an element of, like, character. And then they just kind of, like, Without having to actually develop a character, they just attach everything involved with that accent to it, and then it's, you know, it it makes that whole process quicker and easier. But For it's them. so problematic because it's then so bad. <laughs> they're basically saying, we're leaning on the stereotype yes. here to, like, build this whole yes. character, right? And it's, so. and, totally. And it's unfortunately for them not in general but for them unfortunately you know it's it's not a good excuse no, like it doesn't no. excuse that behavior no. it's not a legitimate reason for doing that and it's not excusable the other thing i found uh, my last curbs is fun fact for this film is that uh spaghetti and meatballs mm-hmm. at that time you would not have spaghetti and meatballs. It was oh, really? way too expensive to buy beef and pork in the 50s. So oh. even if this film was taking place like before World War One, these meats, you're not having that every night. You're not giving that to dogs. Mm. Like you're not like it's just not something you would do. And the fact that they gave Tramp like a bone before, it's yeah. like that's fine. Yeah. But, like we're out here giving away expensive meat to dogs. Like a, in theory, an Italian American immigrant who owns a restaurant would be trying to keep the best cuts of meat for human guests who are paying like i'm you're gonna not leave to you dogs. to have that conversation with frank thomas on your own <laughs> with my Let guy you have i know it, i mean the i want to be clear this game meatballs isn't part of the problem with the racial yeah <laughs> they're just like no what you're not giving away meat to dogs it just like doesn't make so, any so sense plot hole. maybe there is a problem they're making tony and joe look stupid maybe that's mm-hmm. what this person was saying maybe. whoever these cultural critics yeah. are like you're making them look even dumber because they're literally giving away money, which is crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, And then finally, like, the Bulldog and the Dachshund, super German and super Cockney, like, just, like, really hitting it on the nose that this is a British Bulldog and a German dog. Mm -hmm. And then having, you know, the American dogs and Scottish dogs living in mansions and then everyone else is in jail. It's just kind of like, what? Like, why? Oh, I didn't even think of that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like, why are there no American dogs in jail? And then when they're in jail, it's like, you don't belong here, baby. Let's get you out of here. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay. I mean, I guess Peggy. I was going to say she's, Peggy. She's yeah. arguably a lady of the night, though. Yeah. So, again, they're still, they're still like, yeah. painting her as, quote, unquote, 
just as bad as everybody else. Like, it's just a weird mm-hmm. vibe in the dog scene in general. And all of these stereotypes kind of are culminated in the fact that, like, everybody is white. Like, the world of Lady and the Tramp is overwhelmingly white, even yeah. though in the States at that time it would have been much more diverse than what we were seeing. Right. Um, and Lady and the Tramp are both clearly white characters as well. So that terrifying live action you've referred to did try to address that mm-hmm. by having a much more diverse yeah. cast. Um, but for me, that's just too creepy to count. I'm not willing to give it any points because I, the trailer really scarred me. I, oh, I did not all like right. that. Fair enough. I didn't like it. I couldn't tell who was scarier lady or the tramp. I think lady, her ears looked like they were cut off. There like, was like nothing unsettling about them I to me. Know. I thought they were I cute, but nah. I mean, okay. you know what? To each their own. Yeah. You please, please. If it brought you joy for any length of time, Bless you. It, I, like, I think it did. I remember being like, this is I'm nice. Sure. Well, I, this is nice. You know what? I don't know what Curbs is talking about. This is nice. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? This is nice is what people said about Lady and the Tramp because it was Disney's biggest box office hit since Snow White, which was wow. almost 20 years earlier. So it was kind of seen by a lot of people as reestablishing that idea of Disney as being like warm, rounded animation, something that's familiar mm-hmm. and accessible and enjoyable and playful and happy and all those types of things. And that's pretty incredible considering it was more or less competing with Disneyland opening. Disneyland yeah. opened a month after this film came out. So Disney really, <laughs> Disney really put himself against himself. He's like, let's pick, pick a lane. Yeah. People. And turns out people picked, both lanes. Both they were lanes. like, I will take all I will my see money. The dogs. Yeah. Yeah. I will watch the dogs fall in love. Thank you so much. And I will also come over here and, and go to Disneyland. And so, eat at Tony's, which I don't think is in Disneyland. Probably not. Yeah. Like why yeah, no, definitely not in uh Disneyland. But you know what? That's fine. Yeah. That's fine. That would have been Ultimately, smart. That would have been like the thing to do like oh my gosh I just watched Lady and the Tramp and now I'm gonna have my own Bella Note moment at Tony's oh that's true that's true but like how could they have known that people would care about these dogs falling in love you know Oh, they knew. Like, he couldn't have planned for that. For crying out loud, he's too busy sitting on this idea for 20 years. Joe's scribbling on napkins like a crazy (laughs) person and just trying to get this made. And then Walt's stealing ideas. Like, there's the cold notes. If you don't want to listen to the whole episode, just (laughs) listen to that. Scribbling on napkins, stealing ideas, premarital sex. That's this episode. That's what's happening here. So, I mean, ultimately, critics, once again, had a problem. They said it was overdrawn. Audiences were like, no. We love it, which is what happened with Peter Pan. That's something Mm -hmm. we alluded to when we talked about that film. So in spite of the criticisms, it became one of Disney's most beloved films in 2000. Listen to me. In 2002, the film was named as the 95th best romantic film by the American Film Institute on their list of the 100 greatest love stories of all time. And then in 2011, Time Magazine named it one of their 25 best animated films of all time. So it really is up there. And I will leave you with a question. Can you think of which Disney film mm-hmm. ranked higher than Lady and the Tramp on the list of 100 Greatest Love Stories of All Time? What year, sorry, did that list come out? That list came out in 2002. And this film placed 34th out of 100. Greatest Love Stories of All Time. Mm-hmm. My guess would be Cinderella. That is a solid guess, but it is incorrect. It is Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast clocking oh, in at 34. Nice. Cinderella not even on the list. 
So who knew knew? that two dogs would beat out Cinderella and Prince Charming to make it onto the list of 100 Greatest Love Stories of All Time? Clearly, that's not really a love story. You heard it here first. All right, Curbs, it's apology time. And I know that I have apologized to this certain gentleman before, but it just felt like I had to do it again Mm -hmm. one more time. Final apology goes to Joe Grant. Walt forgot about him. So did I. I Yeah. You know, he really, really got shafted on this one. Mixed emotions, but I mostly feel bad for him. Yeah, I mean, we talked a lot about how it was his dog scribbling on the napkins just like a lot of things that really literally were put right in the garbage so poor joe he just he was out here trying to make a story about his dog and it just no one was having it including us we really had (laughs) way too many problems with that i mean i would like to apologize to you personally Mm -hmm. uh at one point i reminded you that you should mention the siamese cat song and then you said i did and Mm -hmm. you did in fact mention it so sorry for not listening to you it's not that i don't care about what you're saying it's that sometimes i think what i'm saying is more important than what you're saying whoa luckily we have it recorded so we can right for posterity and honestly this is humility because i'm mentioning that now i'm being very open (laughs) honest vulnerable and brave about this so i feel that i deserve a pat on the back for that and i would also like to apologize to all of our listeners for the number of times i said the phrase premarital sex it was a lot in this episode i honestly feel like we're going to get an explicit rating just because of how many times i said that phrase but I felt it was important to call that out because there were other cultural critics who thought it was important to call it out. And I just want to belong. I just want to be part of the group. <laughs> so here I am putting myself into a group by saying it so many times. Thanks, Curbs. Appreciate it. Anytime. Anytime. And some of our incredible resources. I watched documentary Ladies Pedigree, The Making of Lady and the Tramp. It was really good. Would recommend. And that's really all you used, right? I mean, that was that was mainly it. There was some other websites here and there, but the bulk of my research came from that. So check it out if you want to learn more. Must have been a good one. Yeah. I had a few uh, really, really impactful and important resources that I used. The first was this article by a guy named Brian Gabriel for Cartoon Brew, which was called Lady and the Lawsuit, Peggy Lee's War with Disney. Honestly, a great title. A great title. Excellent. A-plus marketing. That is clickbait, and I did indeed (laughs) click. So congratulations, Brian, for that headline. I also read another article called The First True Disney Romance, Lady and the Tramp by Marie Ness for Tor.com. And finally, Paul Estelle for Feeling Animated. Honestly, at some point, I'm going to have to reach out and say, Paul, you've changed my life because he wrote a review of Lady and the Tramp. You love Paul. That I once again used as the jumping off point. It used to be Christopher Finch. I've put him away for now. I don't need him. I've got Paul. It's all Paul. All Paul all the time. All Paul all the time. And if you're looking for more shenanigans like these, please make sure to subscribe to the Scenario D podcast wherever you love to listen. And better yet, why not rate us? Those stars go a long way. We're also extremely excited to be bringing you all the facts, feels, and chaos over on YouTube. You can now support us by liking, subscribing, ringing the notification bell, and doing everything else you'd normally do for a channel you love. So go watch our latest episode using the link in this episode's description. And as always, don't forget to catch us on Instagram at Scenario D Podcast. You're going to love the magic we're making there.